All right, welcome everybody to our teaching hour tonight. I'm really excited for this evening. Uh, 10 days is in full swing and is really flying by. This is, uh, uh, we'll be, we're, we're on our fifth day. So we will complete our fifth day tomorrow at noon. So we're almost halfway there. And um, God is really blessing the prayer that's happening on Zoom and also what's happening in locations all over the world. So very encouraged by what the Lord is doing. Tonight we have uh, two special guests. And first off, uh, we have one of my really good friends, Sot Scrivener. Sot is from right here in Massachusetts, same state where I live but we live on opposite sides of the state. We've been very good friends for quite a while. Our, our children are friends. And um, Sot just is really a gifted prophetic teacher. And so we're honored to have him with us today. He's part of the uh, board of our organization. And um, yeah, just really honored to have him with us to share with you all tonight. So Sot, over to you, my friend. Thank you, Jonathan. And hello, 10 days of prayer. Thank you for having me. And um, meager tonight, um, I chose specifically to use some familiar passages, but um, what I'd like to do is, um, since we're in a season now in the prayer movement, we're celebrating obviously like a quantity um, of prayer that's being lifted up. Um, specifically for for Israel in this Pentecost season. And so I wanted to kind of just take a, a, a little bit of a prophetic view and and alongside that quantity element um, that that is in a lot of ways unprecedented, um, I'd like to highlight a couple of passages where the Lord um, demonstrates that it's not just a quantity change that he's planning, and that he requires, but there's a qualitative change to the body of Christ and specifically to um, the priests, to the prayer movement, to the people who are, are taking um, their, their place of, of their standing of prayer before the Lord, you know, seriously and understanding that aspect of our identity. And so um, I think, and one of the reasons I think we can begin to shift and view this is because the prayer movement has been seeded so so widely in the body of Christ. It's almost got a, its own momentum now, as far as that that quantity, the quantity of people who see the need to join together in in a unified, godly effort of prayer. And so that being kind of like a settled deal, you know, it's like a wheel that's in motion. I don't think that the, the momentum that's been created, I don't think it's going to be diminished in any way. It's just something that's going to pick up speed, pick up more people, um, pick up traction as the Lord encounters and answers prayer. Um, and people are gripped with the need of it. So what I'd like to focus on is... Um, specifically the beginning in the book of Malachi and pulling out a couple of familiar sections of Malachi 
and um, trying my best in 25 minutes to demonstrate that this qualitative change is also critical. It's not just uh, it's not just the numbers of people who would begin to cry out. It's that something has to shift even within those numbers, and that the Lord has has identified some of those things from from the prophets of old. And uh, my 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 heart in in sharing these things is to one call attention to it, but then two. Um, so that our our passion and our energy would begin to be directed in this area also. So much passion and energy has been uh, directed towards gathering people to it. And now that people are gathered to it, the Lord is setting out a requirement specifically. I mean, it's all over the scripture, but it's in a very clear way in the book of Malachi. And so I'd like to set that requirement before us. Um, and and so that it can begin to be considered in a fresh way if it hasn't. Um, if it already has been considered, it can be a, maybe it can be rooted deeper. Maybe there's a deeper biblical conviction that can come about some of these stirrings in our hearts. Um, so uh, I'd like to level set. I'm not going to be speaking from the book of Malachi in a primary application to Israel. Um, I don't want to, and I'm saying that because I'm not diminishing that emphasis and the application of the book of Malachi to Israel, national Israel in the end times. But I'd like to take a step back and apply it to the church as we come close to the the coming of, as we draw nearer to the coming of the Lord. Um, And clearly, clearly this book had a a, a specific um, fulfillment leading up to the first coming in John the Baptist, the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, That I would consider more of a first fruits fulfillment. And so we're looking for a fuller fulfillment before the coming of the Lord. And and the emphasis in Malachi of of the coming of the Lord is clear. Chapter three and chapter four make it very plain that, that the primary purpose of this book is to declare realities and give exhortations that are relevant to the believers in Yahweh, in, in Jesus, as the return of the Lord comes, comes upon a generation. So I'm going to read Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And what I'd like to, to put out there is, really, Malachi is being directed to the priesthood. And so we, in the new covenant, we ought to interpret very in a very real way, the priesthood is obviously being the people of God who are taking their stand and ministering before the Lord in worship and prayer. Um, You know, I think that's a very common um, ground, ground level ground. It's widely accepted. That's a, a realm of our priesthood is standing before the Lord in prayer and also in instruction to the people of God. It's and we see both of those 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 dynamics in the book of Malachi, and so the the primary controversy in Malachi is with the Lord and His priests. The secondary controversy is with the people of God at, at large, but the primary controversy that the Lord has is with His priesthood, the ones who are are standing before Him, the ones who are are receiving offering from, from you know, the masses of, of the, the people of God and presenting them coming near and drawing near to Yahweh. And so in verse 6, we, we see a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? 
says the Lord of hosts to you priests. And here's the confrontational statement who despise my name. And so, and so right here, the Lord is saying, look, there's a way in which you are running, you're, you're, you're living contrary to my name. And the very next statement that comes back, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? So from the get-go, we're talking about something that has somehow escaped the notice of many of the leaders in, in the people of God. There's, there's an aspect of something of the name of the Lord, something of his name that has been spurned and rejected in a way. And there's an unawareness in, in those people that this, this offense, as we can see, but this, this contrary reality is being tolerated and accepted as something that is normal. And the Lord is saying, this is actually, this is actually a despising of my name. And, and, and you, my very leaders, the one who draw near to me, are somehow unaware that this is going on. And so right here in verse 7, he tells them, you've defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And how is it contemptible? When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Evil. Offer it then to your governors. Give it to a human leader and see if they'd take a second-rate offering. And of course, the answer is they wouldn't. They'd be offended. But now, here in verse 9, entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? And so here we have the challenge that's put forth at the beginning of Malachi. The prophet is saying, look, Yahweh is saying that there's something in the offering that's being presented back to him that isn't from his name and isn't the fullness of what he's made provision for. In our case, through the cross and the, and the death and the resurrection and ascension. And it's not what he requires. There's something missing from what he requires of, of the priesthood. Okay. And so when we're looking at what the offering is, let's just lay a, a quick foundation, just a quick reminder, what the apostolic understanding of what this offering is. It's not just when we come and we offer up a prayer. It's not just when we come and we enter into worship and rejoice in him. According to Romans 12, Paul stated very clearly when he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So here's the key before we get into the rest of that passage. The apostolic understanding is that what once was animals and sacrifices offered in the Levitical system, in the new covenant, it turns into what? It turns into our transformed life. How, how do we receive the, the righteousness that is reckoned to us and then proceed into a manifestation of holiness and righteousness? So right here, um, it, you know, Paul says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Here are the two issues that are raised there in Malachi. Righteousness and holiness and what will be acceptable to the Lord, to the eternal one. What is an acceptable sacrifice offered from the church? Holiness. Holiness before him. 
And it says there in, in the second half of verse one of Romans 12, which is your reasonable and answer priestly service. And it goes on and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So what I'd like us to do is to view the book of Malachi in the light of what Paul says, the sacrifice that we should offer to Yahweh in the new covenant. It's not just rejoicing in the righteousness that he's um, imputed to us, the righteousness that he's reckoned to us, It's entering into sanctification, into the place where what our actual manifestation is, is a transformed life and a manifestation of holiness and righteousness. And this is the very, and and, and we're not talking about a partial, we're not talking about a mixed manifestation of righteousness. Like James says, is it right that, that poisonous water and sweet water should come out of the same fountain? Is it right that a poisonous berry and and good fruit should come from the same tree? And of course, the answer is no. The apostolic standard of righteousness that was put upon the church was something far greater than a mixture of of good and evil coming out of the same planting. The very thing that the Lord said, he said, you know, we'll be judged by our fruit. And an evil tree, a bad tree can't manifest good fruit and a good tree cannot manifest evil fruit. And the command of Jesus was, therefore, make the tree good. Make it righteousness so the fruit that comes forth can be the fruit of righteousness, not the fruit that is common to humanity who love love righteousness in their heart, but manifest something of both good and evil. So bringing that into view that all of a sudden when God in Malachi, prophetically speaking, has a controversy with the priesthood and with the, the, the offerings that are being presented back to God, we can now understand that what God is looking for is a generation of priests that will offer a manifestation of holiness and righteousness. And here's where we begin to get to this qualitative shift that must come to the believing church in order for the plan of God to proceed and for him ultimately to to answer the way that one, we want him to and the way that he's promised to. So bringing that controversy back, let's let's go back to Malachi. The verses that we first read, it read uh, right up to verse nine, okay? And so... The reason I wanted to interpose Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, was to give us that context of what is what, what area is the controversy that the Lord has when we're talking about this prophetic application of Malachi and the offerings that he's pointing to. So right here in verse 10 and verse 11, of course, verse 11 is like a super famous prayer movement verse. And bridging the gap, though, between what comes before it and what the Lord says in verse 11 has been incredibly instructive to me. And I think it's something that we must do. If we, if we are rejoicing in Malachi 1 verse 11 as the prayer movement, then what, what injustice are we doing if we're not reading what comes before it and seeing what requirement 
and what the Lord has stated before that grand promise, that grand declaration. And so here we have, having identified this controversy that, that Yahweh has with his priests, here in verse 10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. And here's, here's the frightful thing. Here is where the fear of the Lord enters into the, to this, this equation, into this reality. The Lord has promised that his name here in verse 11 would be great among the nations, among the godless nations, the heathen nations who had no knowledge, were living in ignorance of, of the eternal one himself. Now that the gospel has gone forth to them, he's saying something incredible is going to happen amongst these nations. And again, before the, not only in the, the messianic kingdom, not only in the age to come, but before the age to come, something incredible. And what it is, is from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, the name of Yahweh shall be great among the nations, among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name. And I think that's the place where we're rejoicing. Um, incense, though, to me is glorified prayer. It's not just the prayer that we show up and perform, but it's when heaven agrees and the substance of heaven flows out of the believers in earth. And then the glory of God responds to it through the Holy Spirit who comes and endorses and, and empowers that reality. And that, that reality then is a fragrant um, aroma that rises up to the, the enthroned one in agreement, heaven and earth in agreement so that prayers can be answered. So it's not just prayer being offered from all around the world, but it's prayers that are, that are infused with heavenly reality and endorsed with the, the fragrance and the glory of God. Okay? So in every place, incense shall be offered to my name. And then here's the second. And a pure or clean offering. And this is the way that the Lord's name shall be great among the Gentiles. This reality of a glorified worship and prayer, that reality, which which is the fragrance that diffuses out of that transformed life, demonstrating what the good and perfect and beautiful will of God is in Romans 12, and a pure and clean offering. The very controversy that Yahweh is identifying, this, this mixture of righteousness and unrighteousness, this compromised reality, this offering of something that's diminished and less than, than what was purchased on the cross, that reality is done away with in that statement. The Lord has said, before my son returns, this incense and a pure offering will be offered all across the earth from the Gentile believers in Messiah. And in this way, my name will be great among the nations. And so I'd like to demonstrate that this same picture is given in Malachi 3, because Again, what I'm, what I'm trying to do in, in, in a quick and concise way is show that this requirement exists so that we can grab hold of it and begin to have conviction that something has to change qualitatively. As the, as the numbers come in, the next step is going, 
What must change in the temple? What must change in the people who are being harvested into the vision? Okay? And so in Malachi 3, I'm going to put this in as two separate um, two separate sections and read them. Again, familiar passages that I'm hoping will show like that it's anchored in the familiar. It's not something obscure that's been off to the side and hidden. It's anchored in the familiar. Okay. So in Malachi 3, of course, we have that classic statement, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. And uh, just to pause here, in what way is he coming? Is this the, the coming of the victorious king that is being referenced, first of all? No, it's the, it's the, the Revelation 1 high priest of Melchizedek who's coming to take his seat before the lampstand churches to purify them, to call them into repentance, to endorse the things that are good and call forth repentance where it must come forth and give the promises and give the declarations of the promises that will come to those who overcome this condition. This condition of compromise, of offering something that's partial, something that's, that's mixed, um, something that is colored by an idolatry or a diminished worship of, of what the Lord has given to us through the cross. So first he's coming in that way and he's going to, he's going to take his seat. You know, in verse two, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For this is what he's like, a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And not just the refiner's fire that will clear the deck of the wicked to bring forth the age to come. But it says there in verse three, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the priesthood, the sons of Levi. He will purge them the same way gold and silver is, is purged. And here it is that they may offer to Yahweh an offering in righteousness. The requirement that's coming is an uncommon righteousness, a manifestation through grace, by faith, through grace, through the power and glory of God, of something of, of the righteousness of God not being ashamed of the gospel and in the gospel, it finally bearing the fruit of the righteousness of God coming forth, not just the righteousness that we rejoice positionally in, but the righteousness that manifests out of us to declare that we're actually the children of God. Those who are born of God who do not sin. So this is, and, and this is what his first seat, this is what the revelation one the, the appearance of Jesus, the high priest of the order of Melchizedek, his appearance and his presence before the church, firstly, is to purge and purify them so that their offering is made righteous. And then in verse four, then that offering of Judah and Jerusalem, it will be pleasant to the Lord. It will be acceptable. We hear that same language. It will be pleasing and acceptable before the Lord. And what is the outcome? Here in verse 5, we see that this purification and this manifestation of righteousness is a prerequisite 
to verse five, I will come near to you for judgment and justice. The rising up of Yahweh to release justice into the earth before the second coming has this prerequisite put upon it, this qualitative change in the expression of the body of Christ and in the priesthood of God before the Lord returns. And then the swift witness, the swift authority and dominion from Yahweh will break out against the sorcerers, so the realms of the demonic, against the adulterers, against the perjurers, the liars, and those who exploit the innocent and the poor and the weak because they they don't fear me. Because So the Lord is saying this manifestation, this qualitative change is required so that I can rise up and make a grand manifestation of, of my dominion and my justice and my righteousness, ulti- culminating in the second coming, but preceding it as well. And so uh, just to wrap this up, I wanted to tie it to Psalm 24. Again, I'm looking for familiar verses so that we can see that this, this isn't often obscurity, even if we haven't seen, um, if we haven't taken taken notice as much as we ought to at this point. Well, you know, that's what I'm here for. I'm going, let's take notice of this. Let's see that this is a critical part of the plan of God. And because the quantity, because the, the, uh, the momentum of the prayer movement is so, it, it's, you know, it's like a steam engine going down the tracks now. Let's look for the next thing that ought to come and fix our eyes on that. And begin to have faith and revelation, to begin to cry out for that, to begin to humble ourselves before the Lord. Like James says, to weep and mourn as adulterers, as ones who haven't haven't come to the right manifestation yet, not in condemnation, not in shame, but purging our hearts from condemnation and shame, purging our hearts from unbelief, purging our hearts from from the presence, the, the Zechariah 3 presence of the accuser of the brethren who has cause to accuse us, purging his voice from the midst of us and purging the dirty garments, the Lord being able to lift off of us those dirty garments, those priestly garments that ought to be removed so that we can be clothed with the beauties of holiness from Psalm 110 and actually welcome the, the dawning of the age to come, crying out and being prepared for the day of his power so that we can stand up under it so that we can actually meet the call of Malachi, who can endure and stand? Well, there is a generation coming. There is a generation coming who can endure the hostility and endure the, 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 the judgments, the, the deception, who can endure the glory, who can endure it all. And it's this generation that we ought to be looking for. And so... Closing with uh, the whole of Psalm 24, but I'm going to put it in three parts just to emphasize a little distinction here. So verses one and two, the earth is Yahweh's and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. So the first picture we're given here, it's highlighting a worldwide expression of God's dominion, his ownership and dominion over the entire earth, which sounds, interestingly enough, it sounds a little familiar, like my name shall be great from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name shall be great among all the Gentiles. 
Okay, so we're seeing that there's this global manifestation is, is the context of the beginning of, of Psalm 24. Okay, and then the next section, verses three through six, we'll read those. And here, interestingly enough, we see the same cry echoed. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may enter into the place where his glory dwells? Who may stand in the place of his holy, where his holy and terrifying and brilliant unapproachable light is manifest? Who may stand before the presence of this holy sovereign? And here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Those who are in the manifestation, be thou holy as I am holy. Taking the the original command and desire of God's heart for a pure and holy, peculiar nation of priests to stand before him in holiness. So who will enter into that interaction with the eternal one? Who will stand in the place where his glory is, is manifest? Well, the pure and the clean, whose whose soul is no longer lifted up to an idol, whose whose very words have been cleansed, who has not sworn deceitfully. Like James says, he who's restrained the tongue has restrained the whole being, whose, whose mouth has been purified like Isaiah received when his iniquity was taken away and his speech was clarified. And sorry. 731, I'm going to read the rest of the psalm and we're done. (laughs) So he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And here it is. This is Jacob. This is the peculiar generation of those who seek him, who seek his face. And how does this culminate in the very same way that Malachi does? It culminates with the cry of that very generation saying, let the gates be open so that the Son of Man may return in all of his glory. Amen. Amen.